You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. My co-host Wade Bearden is out for the week. Is he trying to avoid going on the record about one of the more controversial films to come out in the past weeks? The jury's out, but fortunately we have a guest on the show this week to help me dig into Zack Snyder's Justice League, the expanded and reshot version of the 2017 superhero team-up flick that fans have been clamoring for and that supposedly faithfully preserves Snyder's directorial vision for the film. Lots of conversation has swirled around the movie since we learned last year that it was actually happening, and I've got Detroit film critic Chris Williams on the show to help me dig into this new cut. Does it mark an improvement over the original version, and also a step forward for DC superheroes on the big screen? We'll talk about it all on today's episode, number 284, of Seeing and Believing. I'm in the dark. Yes, we're here on episode 284 of Seeing and Believing. And as I mentioned earlier, Wade is not here this week. He is on travel. So in his stead, I have a great guest. I'm really excited to have him uh, on his maiden voyage here on Seeing and Believing. Chris Williams is a Detroit film critic. He's co-host of another film podcast, The Bi-Weekly We're Watching Here, as well as running the film criticism website Far From hollywood.com. Chris Williams, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to discuss such a uh, momentous moment in cinema. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I was I was actually, you know, I was kind of prepping for this show and I was really realizing that man, Chris is going to have kind of a, a little bit of a trial by fire here for your first <laughs> guest spot on Seeing and Believing because this is yeah, the Justice League and its various permutations has been a quite a lightning rod for controversy, at least as far as you know film criticism topics go. So you are you're you're brave to to make this your your maiden voyage. Hopefully, we don't get you uh, attacked by angry fanboys from either the Marvel or the DC uh, fanboy universes. <laughs> no, I think Batman fans are go. They're pretty cool about things. They're chill. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, well, like I mentioned, listeners, this is a movie that we're talking about this week that has been a long time in the making, you might say. Uh, there's a brief oral history that goes along with it. Not long after Warner Brothers and DC superhero team-up movie Justice League premiered in 2017, it was found to be a disappointment by critics and fans alike. Rumors swirled that the film's problems could be laid at the feet of Warner Brothers, who brought Joss Whedon on board to finish the film after director Zack Snyder left halfway through production due to a family tragedy. Fans argued that Snyder's version would have been far superior to the version that Whedon cut and released, and online petitions circulated for WB to bring Snyder back to release a version more in line with his original vision. Chris, we're here in 2021, and what seemed like a quixotic dream is actually now a reality. The mythical Snyder cut of Justice League is here. Snyder did indeed come back to finish a version, unmistakably his version of the film, working for free on it in order to retain creative control. It's four hours long and significantly restructured. There's no mistaking the fact that this is Justice League as Snyder wanted it, or at least as close as it is humanly possible in an imperfect world. And it's now available to see for anyone willing to sign up for HBO Max. So like I said, this is a movie that has had a lot of conversations surrounding it, and it was almost willed into existence by the legions of DC fans who really just couldn't wait to see what Snyder 
had up his sleeve for his cut. So my question for you to get us started as we sort of jump into everything this movie has to offer is I'm curious to know what your reaction was to the original Justice League when it came out in 2017. But I'm even more interested to know how you think this new Snyder cut measures up or maybe fails to measure up to to that original. Sure. Um, I, I had to search back. I actually read the review I wrote back in 2017 uh, because honestly, the the weeding cut had just disappeared from my mind after seeing it. Um, and, and I was kind of surprised to find I gave it a, a, a tepid review, but it leaned more positive. Um, and, and I think a lot of what it came down to was I haven't been a fan historically of what Zack Snyder has done with the DC characters. I, I don't dislike Snyder. Um, I, there are a few of his films I really like, like the Dawn of the Dead remake. Um, but when he's come to the DC universe, I feel like he's just brought a dourness and a big, loud, angry voice to characters who are supposed to be heroes and particularly Superman. So I did not care for his take on Man of Steel uh, in which Superman punched everything and everyone kind of just shrugged it off with, well, it's his first day. Um, <laughs> Batman, Batman versus Superman. I, it's one of the hardest sits I've ever had in a theater. Um, just it, it's such an angry dark movie because he starts with such a dark Superman already that Batman is, you know, very violent and nihilistic. And this whole movie just has this angry, dark energy to it. So I think when I saw Justice League, um, I, I was actually really surprised that, oh, the first thing we see is Superman smiling. And he's smiling, of course, below a very bad CG removed mustache. <laughs> but he's smiling. And Whedon, who brought a light sensibility to the Avengers, seemed to have been brought into Justice League to uh, to lighten it up a bit. And so I enjoyed the fact that it made me laugh a few times. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that it was in and out in two hours. Um, I, I had a decent time with it. It was painless. But I also remember feeling this is the work of two filmmakers who are, could not be more diametrically opposed. And they are trying to get a coherent movie out of these two sensibilities. And you could just feel that wrestling in every scene um, that made it just feel like this unwieldy, misshapen mess that kind of moved in fits and starts. So, I, you know, it, it was still a very tepid review. Um, and I will say, having watched the Snyder Cut, it, it is it is a more coherent movie. It is in line with what Snyder has done from Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. It's it's in line with what he's been doing the whole time. There is a more coherent tone. I think having the one vision makes it move a little bit faster. I mean, the four hours is four hours, but it, it didn't feel like a drag the way some of the two-hour Justice League was. So I thought it was a much more coherent film. It's definitely an improvement over that 2017 release. Um, but we can talk about what that means because it's an improvement, <laughs> but I don't know that I, I I'm comfortable calling it good. Yeah. And an improvement over what that's kind of the, the, yeah. the million dollar question. Uh, I, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, you mentioned going back and trying to read your, your old review of the original justice league, uh, to even just to remind yourself what you thought of it, because it kind of just fell out of your brain after, after you watched it. And I had a really similar experience. I, I was thinking about like, I remember not much caring for justice league, but I don't remember a whole lot about it specifically it just kind of slid out of out of my mind so i went back and read my review and and the phrase that jumped out at me in the wake of watching this new cut was that 2017 version i said it was it was basically this is what entertainment made in a shareholders meeting looks like it's just <laughs> it's very it was very slick it was kind of you know fast and poppy it didn't it didn't want to linger too long in one place because it was almost like it was scared that you would get bored of it it wanted to introduce all of these these characters into the film not necessarily because they needed to be there but because they're 
you know, intellectual property and they would strengthen the brand. So it just, it felt very, there's an air about it that just, it didn't seem like there was any particular creative spark to it. It was just sort of, it was made because we needed to have another DC superheroes movie. And this was kind of next on the assembly line. Now with, with this Snyder cut, I, that's definitely not true of this. You watching this four hour movie, no one in their right minds could possibly think, yeah, this is a movie that the suits at Warner brothers would be a okay with. It's four hours long. It's extremely Snyder to the point, like it's, it doesn't have the feeling that's been focus grouped to death, I guess. Um, I don't know that I like, I don't think it's any better than the 2017 version. It's, maybe bad along a different axis. But one thing it's definitely not is soulless corporate entertainment. It's very much an idiosyncratic Zack Snyder movie. And I mean, I guess if you're a Snyder fan, that's probably good news for you. I, I'm going to lay my cards on the table right now and say that I am very much not a Snyder fan, but I can appreciate some of the things that he was trying to do with this movie, even if I don't know that it totally gets all the way home in terms of actually succeeding at those things. Yeah, I, I it, it's definitely Zack Snyder's vision. Um, I, I do think, you know, it's odd. It's a different type of shareholder mentality um, <laughs> because the only reason this movie is seen the light of day is because Warner Brothers and AT&T have a streaming service that they need they need subscribers to and they know okay well we didn't get that friends reunion because of covid we need something else to draw people in you know what people have been talking about this fabled 4 hour cut that may or may not exist let's let's toss some money at that and in this case it you know it's toss money to let Snyder do whatever he wants instead of you know, let's course correct to make Justice League more of a Marvel movie. Um, so it is this weird thing where it is still, you know, it's his vision. It's it's very much, you know, like you said, it, it's it's maybe the most Snyder thing Snyder has ever done. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's big and it's bombastic and operatic and very, you know, emotional. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's never met, like I said it in my review, he's never met... A, a scene that couldn't be improved with slow motion and a sad song, um, you know, <laughs> and this has full of sad songs and slow motion, um, but it feels like his. And I, I will say, I think it's a little of an improvement over the uh, Whedon version. I think it is a movie that is too much. It's four hours. And I don't know who, who would be able to sit through four hours of this, but I look at it and I see the choices he made in the story he's telling and how there's a coherent story here. There's a story that makes sense here and a tone that doesn't fall apart. I have to believe there was a three-hour cut of this that is just as good as anything Whedon turned in or better. And it just baffles me that their reaction was to go so strongly the other way. Um, it, it's strange. Yeah, it's uh, it, it does make you you wonder just, you know, if, how much of it they like how much of it that Snyder showed them says, OK, I want to have the scene where the flash, you know, he's applying for a job at a pet store. Right. But then there's a car crash and there's hot dogs flying all over the place because <laughs> somebody hit a hot dog cart and the flash steals a hot dog. I want that in my movie. I, I just have to imagine the what the expressions on people's faces were for for that meeting it's definitely an idiosyncratic move to say the least i am curious to know like let's maybe dig into some of these differences or maybe it would be more accurate to say expansions because basically this is the same broad strokes movie in terms of its plot like there's you know, uh, Superman has just died in the previous movie. Um, Batman has gotten wind that there's this uh, extraterrestrial threat named Steppenwolf who is coming to Earth uh, in order to get these MacGuffins that will allow him to terraform everything and sort of take over the world and wipe out all human life on the planet. And so he sets about recruiting our, all these various characters to join the fight. And along the way, 
they they've tried to figure out a way how to get Superman to to come back and be the savior that that Earth needs. That's all all here in both of the the films, but in this version, Snyder takes a lot of detours that I'll agree with you on this much make it a, a stronger picture. He lavishes more care on on the on each one of the characters and makes the film about more than just let's stop the bad guy from doing the bad mm-hmm. thing. And and you do learn more about these characters. I think Cyborg is the one who stood out to me in in the Whedon cut. He is he's a non-character. He's an accessory. He is, you know, he shows up I don't even remember much about him in that movie. And in this cut, uh, Ray Fisher and Joe Morton, they provide kind of the emotional core of this movie. And I I thought everything about Cyborg and his relationship to his father, who, you know, made him after an accident using Kryptonian technology, you know, it, there, there's a sadness to it that worked. There's a tension between Cyborg and his father that that worked, even as that sentence sounds very bizarre to me. But uh, you know, it, it, to me, it, I thought Ray Fisher is is very solid as this angry, confused man who who finds a place where he belongs. And Joe Morton is this father who, you know, he he doesn't have this connection with his son, and he's trying to maintain that somehow. And I, I liked that. I thought that was a good addition to this. Um, and and I, we get a little more of that. Even the bad guy is not just the come on down and destroy Earth for, you know, for kicks. He's there because Steppenwolf has this chip on his shoulder where he needs to please his boss. And he's kind of like a cosmic Dwight Schrute <laughs> this time around. Uh, and, and it's silly. And the, the movie treats it deadly serious, which I think makes it even sillier. But I, I like that shading a little bit more than the video game villain who came down in, you know, 2017's movie. Um, yeah, I, I liked those additions. I, I thought the movie had more time to breathe with those. Um, and, and I appreciated those additions, even if I still don't think Snyder has a handle on Superman, particularly, and Batman, and, and what I, makes them work. So I, I'll I'll give Snyder this. I think there is a moment in this version where the, the Superman feels kind of like what Superman should be, or, or it feels like Snyder finally kind of has a handle on who he wants Superman to be. So there's, there's a scene where, you know, uh, uh, spoiler alert for anyone who has been living under rock and doesn't know that Superman comes back in this movie. Uh, Superman comes back and he's kind of, uh, recovered his memories. He remembers, you know, who he is, why he's here. Um, and he, uh, puts on the suit once more. He dons the cape and he flies up into space like all good supermen do. And Snyder kind of has this this interesting shot where he frames him from behind, silhouetted against uh, the yellow sun uh, up in space. And he's kind of, he's not in the Christ pose, which was my big quibble with a lot of Snyder's Superman uh, stuff where he just kind of thinks that Superman equals Jesus and kind of puts him in that, in that Christ pose because he thinks that's, what being deep is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in this one, he he's a little bit more subtle about it. And Superman kind of, it, he's not striking Christ pose. He's more just striking more of a generic deity pose. Like this is somebody who is above the, the people who are on earth surface. You know, Batman is just a person. Uh, all of earth's people are just people. This is somebody else who is good and, is going to save the day. And I think in that moment, Snyder kind of, it's still his Superman. Like this is a black suit and a black cape that this soups is wearing, but he's not, you know, he's at least not snapping necks and contemplating whether or not he should even save the day at all. And I think th- that's kind of a moment maybe where Snyder kind of strikes the, the balance between the earlier versions of Superman, where he just doesn't quite seem to want to have a, do-gooder boy scout america you know like america's boy scout um but he you know also can't quite make him a a totally morally ambiguous so it kind of gets caught between i think he he finesses that middle ground a lot more effectively in moments like those 
I definitely think it is the best handling that Snyder's had of these characters out of the three films he made. Um, I, I definitely think there are moments where he remembers, oh, these characters are supposed to be aspirational. They're not supposed to be just angry and violent and, you know, over the top. They, they're supposed to be an element of hope to them, which he has seemed allergic to in, in his other two movies. Um, but I, I got really frustrated the farther away I got from this movie. I, I was a little impressed by it when I first saw the movie. I was like, oh, you know, Superman smiles at the end of this at, at a point. <laughs> Superman, you know, Superman seems a little more in line with the Superman that I grew up with. But he has a tendency to really undercut it. So his Superman, you know, comes back, and this is in the weed and cut as well. He he wakes up, you know, from his his, his nap, and he's a little cranky pants. But uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's angry, and you know, his Superman, his first instinct is this powerful being is going to kill us all. So the only thing that reigns him in is Lois Lane, and. To me, that that undercuts who Superman is, the the genuineness at the core of him. You know, he, Snyder seems very suspicious that Superman could be, you know, that good at the core. He has to be reined in. He has to, you know, have a reason to be good and not just be Superman. The super and that might just be my bias as the Superman I grew up with was, you know, very kid friendly Superman, a very hopeful Superman. Um, but even throughout the movie, even when we get to the ending and I'm not, I won't spoil anything, but you know, you, we get to the end of the movie and I felt like, okay, you know, there's this montage. Um, I want to say it's near the end, but I, you know, there were about 30 points where I thought the end was coming and it, it <laughs> you know, but, but there's this montage that kind of, you know, strikes very heroic poses for all these characters. I'm like, Snyder might finally get it. These are these are heroes. These are you know people we look up to. And then he goes on for another half hour to say, you know, give us reason to be afraid of Superman and and he's really dangerous. And I have that same issue with Batman, who I think there, you know, Ben Affleck has been someone who I've thought has been very good in the Bruce Wayne Batman role. And I like the role he has here of kind of this this guy who's you know, he's sorry for the tension he caused in the previous film. He's he regrets that that he didn't trust Superman and instead, you know, suspected him and and pushed him. And so he's getting this team together and it kind of leans into that Batman as paternal figure that I think a lot of movies haven't touched on. But it's a part of the comic book mythos. Uh, he's this, you know, kind of parental figure. He He gathers teams together. Um, but then it's undercut again by, oh, yeah, this is still Batman who has Gatling guns on his car and <laughs> and, and is still really violent. And also, really, when he's with super high-powered beings, not that useful. But but uh, <laughs> it, it's there's this tension where he just has this hesitancy to to kind of seem to get what these characters are about. Or, you know, again, my bias, maybe just what I want these characters to be about. And then he seems a little hesitant to hold on to that and needs to lean back into the grim, dark aesthetic and and say, no, 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 you know, we're, we're still edgy and this is still dark. And that frustrated me. Well, I, I think you're, you're touching on kind of what frustrates me about Snyder in general as a filmmaker is that he's really good at coming up with striking imagery, you know, the, the <laughs> image. Uh, of everyone striking a pose in, in a, you know, standing in a line and striking a pose. It's it's very striking. The image of uh, just awoken Superman, like headbutting Wonder Woman into the sidewalk is very striking. The image uh, from the film ending epilogue, which is horrifically misguided of, you know, Superman landing and his eyes are glowing red and he looks like he's going to just kill everyone. It's very striking. Those are all very strikingly framed, um, well-conceived shots in isolation. The problem I think is that they all kind of say different things. Like it doesn't seem like Snyder really is interested in what his images mean. He just wants to find cool images and put them on screen, which is fine as far as it goes until you start trying to find a coherent theme for his movies. And they just, they just don't let themselves be read that way because he doesn't really, it's almost like he doesn't think of them that way. He wants to create a series of cool moments 
And if they cohere and gel together into something that's meaningful, great. If they don't, well, you know, it's still pretty cool to watch Superman snap Zod's neck, right? You know, like that. And I think that's that's on display here in Justice League in really frustrating ways where you do have um, the these interesting moments that then he either undercuts or he cuts to something that's irrelevant and really should have just been left on the editing room floor. And you, you come away with it thinking, well, I sure got a lot of that, but I'm not sure if I really liked half of it. And I don't know if, if you're a pessimist like me, you, you'd kind of end up thinking like, well, I just don't like this movie. It's bad. But you know, if you're a fan, you might approach it more with kind of, kind of the perspective that I didn't like some of that, but it was really nice that Snyder at least fixed some of the problems with the earlier movie and uh, maybe it's just a matter of perspective in that sense. It might be. Um, I want to go back to what you were saying about images and how he doesn't quite know what to do with the meaning behind them. Uh, you had brought up that sequence with the Flash, which which I think visually is a very fun sequence. The first time we get to see the Flash in action. And, you know, it, there are some really striking images there. I love the way you know, his feet explode out of his sneakers when he starts running or, you know, the way there's a uh, focus on a single sesame seed floating as all these hot dogs from a hot dog cart. That that sesame seed gets more of a close up than (laughs) a lot of the people in this movie. It's incredible. But, but then that scene keeps going and keeps going to where there's, you know, this, this uh, girl who, the Flash, I, for all intents and purposes, I don't think he's seen her before, except like a few seconds earlier when she was walking to her car. And he starts like rearranging her hair and caressing her face. And it's supposed to be this, you know, I, I've seen people describe this as, oh, I thought that was actually a really sweet scene. And I'm like, that's kind of creepy that 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 character <laughs> never shows up again. And for all intents and purposes, she's asleep in that moment. Like she doesn't know what's going on. And it's just one of those moments that hangs on too long and I think is intended to be, I, I don't know, it's slightly romantic or something, but it, it just, it strikes the wrong tone to me and it it it's creepy and it, it stuck with me as that would have been the first thing I cut out is that those sequences in that scene. Um, even though I like the rest of that scene and I really like Ezra Miller. Um, I, I think he's he's the character who I had been waiting for Snyder to introduce in these movies, which is someone who's just happy to be there. He has this goofy smile on his face whenever he's filmed alongside all the other characters. And, and I like that. So it's, it's this tension of, I like a lot of what he's doing, but he does too much of it or he goes too far. And I think that is what happens when you give a director carte blanche to make a four hour movie. <laughs> Right. I, I mean, and some and to be fair, some of the things that he does use that that blank check for are they're very they're interesting. So one of the first things that a lot of people will notice when they're watching this film is that it's um, it's presented in Academy ratio, that boxy mm-hmm. four to three aspect ratio that, you know, uh, classic a lot of classic Hollywood movies were were made in. If you had, you know, old, older, you know, this older boxer boxy TV sets, that's where you, what you would see movies, you know, presented in that ratio in. And that's in stark contrast to the widescreen presentation that Whedon's version gave us. And it's interesting to see how Snyder kind of uses that boxier aspect ratio to almost give the movie the feeling of iconography, right? Like we're, we're looking at these, these superhuman beings kind of as as icons they loom over you or they fill the entire frame just because the frame is smaller there's there's less on either side and that focuses focuses the audience's attention in pretty interesting ways and that's the sort of move that you can't really imagine a a studio making a tentpole blockbuster to really go for so i appreciate stuff like that here but the there are other things that he uses that carte blanche for that they're just sort of it just it it's very Zack Snyder. It's just not a flavor that I like that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I you know it, it, a little goes a long way with him for me. Um, 
I, I, there are there are things I did like the way he used that aspect ratio because it does like his approach to these characters is very different from how Marvel, for instance, treats their characters where they, you know, they're designed to be, you know, they're superpower and everything, but they're relatable. You know, they, they crack jokes. You, you, you kind of get to know them and, you know, they're, they're buddies. They're the, they're the real super friends. Um, but you know, these characters are I mean, very much treated as epic characters. They're icons, as you said, they're, you know, very much, uh, you know, mythic characters and that's how he treats them. Um, there's a whole sequence where, um, where a group of villagers sings a song about Aquaman and, you know, that, that is a very <laughs> indulgent scene, but man, I dug that because that was a moment where I'm like, oh, you know, that's underscoring the scope of this story, the, the feel that Snyder's going forward to these epic characters. Um, and, and I really felt like, oh, there's a ton of, you know, going back in time, uh, you know, going back in time to look at something that happened centuries ago, going to another world. And it, it really felt in places like what Snyder had in mind was less of a uh, Avengers type movie and more of a, you know, Lord of the Rings movie, although that comparison is not meant to be a quality comparison, but it feels like that's what he said. This is more mythic. This is more, you know, legendary, whereas Marvel takes place in something a little more closely resembling the real world. And I, I like that there's that different approach, uh, even if it's not an approach I totally dig all the time. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that you said earlier when when you're thinking about kind of who is is the the emotional heart of this movie. You mentioned how cyborg and the expanded material that we get surrounding his relationship with his father kind of um, makes him a much more central character than he was in the original cut. Uh, for me, watching this film, I I kind of felt like it, if the film had a protagonist, it's it's Batman in this one um, because. In a way, his his personal uh, character arc is running in parallel to the film's overall arc, which is kind of a, all about learning to to believe in gods, like trust. Like we need uh, higher powers to to save us. We need to have faith that we can we can hang together and and overcome. Uh, a threat. Uh, these these are things that Batman kind of he begins Batman versus Superman essentially wanting to kill God because mm -hmm. he's not human, and he ends this film being glad that God, i.e., Superman, is not human, and being glad that he's on the same team as him. And that's that's an interesting place, I guess, for for this film to go. And it's the only example I can really think of where the spiritual undercurrents of a Snyder film have felt like more than window dressing. Like this is more than just putting Superman in the Christ pose and saying he sacrifices himself just like Jesus. And that's the end of it. It feels like the spiritual themes run a little bit deeper in this film, which I appreciate, even if I don't think that ultimately the rest of the material around it works all that well. Yeah. I had not thought of that. Um, but you're right. That is there. Um, and I think that was it was there a little bit in the Whedon cut. Like that was kind of, you know, Batman's arc as well. But it's definitely given more room here and more weight. Um, and I think it would have been more effective for me had I felt like Snyder um, liked Superman. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, but but I think that's definitely there, I think. And, and I do think it is a vast improvement over Man of Steel, where it was basically, you know, let's put Superman in front of a church window, um, which is <laughs> one of the shots I, I remember from that. Um, but I think that is there. I, I think, you know, Batman learning to, you know, trust this higher power. To have is, faith, I guess, is the, is yeah, the phrase he uses. He does, and he very blatantly says that at one point. I, I liked that. Um, and I don't know why they didn't you know, stand out to me as much, um, maybe because it wasn't that weed and cut and the cyborg stuff to me was all new. Um, well, I mean, it, it probably didn't stand out to you as much because it's just surrounded by so much utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. that it's easy for it to get lost. And I guess that's probably my, my overall biggest problem with this new cut is there's so much self-indulgence here that there's, there's good bits here and there, but it just gets completely drowned out by all the just terrible or just bizarre decisions that 
Snyder sticks with. I mean, we haven't really talked all that much. I don't even know if we've talked about at all the subplot where we find out more about Darkseid's bigger plan for the mother boxes and kind of, you know, what what the villains even want out of the story. <laughs> and I think the problem is it's it's really there. It's just not that interesting. They're, no, they they don't even rise to the level of Thanos in the Marvel movies. And I mean, listeners know from listening to earlier episodes that I'm not a big fan of Thanos either, but <laughs> I guess to, to paraphrase uh, Walter Sobchak from The Big Lebowski, say what you will about Thanos, but at least he has an ethos. <laughs> you know, like, what does is, what is Steppenwolf and Darkseid want here? Uh, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's a formula. Uh, so I, I don't know, like, that. that I found that, I, I thought about this a lot as I was watching the movie. I noticed how I would check out anytime it started to uh talk about the plot like anytime it was talking about the mother boxes or you had to stop a glowy thingy even though i i love the marvel movies and i was okay with them chasing you know magic rocks for 20 movies for some reason i i was okay with that but you get to the mother boxes and i'm like no i don't want to chase more glowy things um but it you know it didn't interest me there. I was more interested in the weird digressions, like, you know, the flashback to cyborgs creation or, you know, the flash and Batman uh, kind of bantering a bit or things like that. But whenever it would get into more comic booky territory, like the mythology, I was just like, yeah, you know, it, it, for all the, uh, for all the pretensions, for all that Zack Snyder wants this to be this giant myth, it's still, you know, get the thingy. It's it's right. still that movie at heart. Um, one thing I've been uh, going through in my mind trying to figure out is, I don't know how you watch this. Um, I watched this in about four or five different sittings. And I think that helped my reaction to the movie a bit um, because I felt more like I was binging a TV show. And I don't know if that undercut like my expectations or what I was forgiving of. Um, but I, I'm... I've been trying to imagine how I would feel sitting in a theater for four hours watching this. And I have to, I have to imagine it would lose a whole star for me if I had to do that. Um, there's something to be said for viewing it on this platform that, it, you know, I could break it up and it felt like something different. And if it played as a full movie beginning to end for me, I think I would just, it, it would be interminable. Well, I mean, we have to say like the, this half hour epilogue is essentially one long post credit sequence. Like almost mm -hmm. all of it is teasing future movies that will probably never get made, at least not in this form. I and hope not. so, I mean, like I can't imagine it even making it into a theater, except it's kind of like a little Easter egg for everyone who sits through, you know, the names of the, the key grip and the best boy and, and all of that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like you in that I didn't watch this all in a single sitting and I'm kind of, I was almost wondering the opposite is, you know, I, I have a, a newborn and so, you know, I'm not, I don't have time to really sit down for four hours at a time and, and watch an entire superhero movie of this length. And I was wondering though, like if, if I did sit down and just kind of, well, treated almost like, you know, one of the extended edition of the Lord of the Rings movies where you just sort of sink into it and get immersed in the world. And the length is almost part of the point. Maybe I would feel more charitable toward it if I kind of engaged with it on that immersive level. I, I don't think I would. I think there are so many problems here that it would probably still really grate on me whenever one of them, whenever one of them came up. But I mean, it's it's a film that kind of feels pulled in different directions where it kind of wants to be this self-consciously mythic experience but also kind of wants to be a fun fleet superhero action movie and i i just don't i think it kind of maybe gets pulled between those extremes to the point where it all it maybe falls apart under it it's it's hard to tell without me actually like sitting down and sitting and watching this for the full four hours and I got to say, I, that is never going to happen. I do not see myself devoting four hours at a time to Zack Snyder's Justice League, even if it is better than the 2017 version. Not even in three weeks when they put out the black and white cut? Oh, man. Don't even... I, you know, I this is just a small quibble, but 
the color grading in this movie annoyed me so much that the black and white <laughs> version where everything is actually black and white instead of just being completely desaturated might actually be an improvement. Who knows? But no, the <laughs> the black and white version isn't going to entice me back. Uh, I, I don't think. How do you, do you think you are going to answer its siren call, Chris? Oh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> this, uh, you know, I, I'm glad I saw this. Uh, it's given me a lot to write about. Uh, it allowed me to come on here. Um, but I will be happy to not think about this movie again. Um, I, you know, it, it's it's the best movie in a series of movies that I just don't like that that aren't my thing. Um and I'm okay with that. And if people like it, and if there are people out there who are watching the Snyder Cut, and they're like, I love this. This is what I wanted. Great. You know, I, I, it doesn't offend me the way a Batman versus Superman does. But man, I'm not going to sit through this again. And <laughs> I, I think Snyder is happy to move on. He's got a movie coming out in May on Netflix. And I'm a little more interested in that than seeing what he could do with any more Superman movies. Uh, you know, I, I hit my favorite movie that he's done is his zombie movie. So sure, bring on another zombie movie. Yeah, well, there, there you go. Listeners, that is our review of Zack Snyder's Justice League. As I mentioned earlier, if you are an HBO Max subscriber, you can watch this for free. And if you have had a chance to catch it, we would definitely be interested in hearing your thoughts. Twitter is a buzz right now about this movie. So if you have some thoughts, definitely tweet us at Pod over on Twitter. Or if you have some more long-form thoughts about Zack Snyder's opus, you can always email us at seeingandbelievingcap at gmail.com so uh, we're reaching the end of the episode chris and normally what wade and i do here in this segment is we each bring a recommendation from the world of television or film to kind of uh, point our listeners towards and let them know that they should definitely check it out if they get a chance so i'm curious to know uh do you have a recommendation for us this week I do. Uh, I had the opportunity to screen the new action movie, Nobody, uh, starring Bob Odenkirk. This is directed by uh, Ilya Nashuler, um, whose only previous directorial credit was the um, the first person movie, Hardcore Henry, uh, from a few years ago, which I have not seen. Um, but uh, this, is, this is a movie starring, like I said, Bob Odenkirk as a mild manner man. Mild-mannered man who, uh, you know, his house is burgled one night and he doesn't stand up for his family and he begins to regret that. And what you soon find out is he's got a whole secret life that kind of reawakens because of this incident and he decides to go out and uh, kick some butt. And of course it, you know, it pulls in Russian gangsters and things like that. Um, This is a movie that feels... And looks very much like a John Wick movie. And I think that's because Derek Kolstad, who wrote all three John Wick movies, is the writer of this film. And David Leach, who uh, is, I believe, the director of one of them and the producer of them, he produced this film as well. So there's a very John Wick feel. And I'm a fan of the John Wick movies. And... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to be at that point where I get a little uneasy with action movies that kind of, you know, have a lot of gunplay and things like that. But the thing about the John Wick movies is they always take place in this kind of left of reality world where there's this elaborate mythology and you know it's not quite the, quite the real world. And by casting Bob Odenkirk, they do that here in just a totally different way. Uh, it, it's a very comedic darkly comedic film um and he's very good in it i've liked him ever since the first time i saw mr show i love better call saul and he's really good uh as this kind of milk toast man who reveals himself to have a little more of a dark past uh he acquits himself very well in the fight sequences they are a lot of fun they're very inventive um christopher lloyd at one point shows up in a role that i really enjoyed um you know, he's just he when you look at Bob Odenkirk in this, you see a guy who's in on the joke. He knows he's not an action star and he he leans into that. But also he's pretty intimidating by the end of the movie. And, uh, you know, the, this isn't going to reinvent the wheel. It's not as good as the John Wick movies. But I had a really fun time with this. There are some uh, action sequences that I really dug. And yeah, it, it was just a lot of fun. 
I, I got to say, I what, you know happened to cross a little uh, video vignette uh, on, on the internet a couple of days ago where it was, it was a promo for this movie and it was Bob Odenkirk essentially kind of like walking us through the workout routine he went through mm-hmm. to get in shape for this role. And I, I have to say, you're watching, watching him kind of go through some of these, uh, activities of like Bob Odenkirk is in way better shape than I am. Like that guy, <laughs> you know, it, I, he, he may not be like the, the quintessential action star, but he could, you know, easily, outdo outdo me on pretty much any physical task and he like you said is just a a tremendous actor and very funny i've been interested in kind of seeing him kind of be in the liam neeson uh you know taken role uh i just that's such a interesting way to use him Mm -hmm. that i i don't really know what to expect out of this movie but i've been looking forward to seeing it so that's that's a good pick for sure i can't wait to check it out it's fun yeah. Uh, well, the the movie that I'm going to recommend for this week is decidedly, <laughs> it's decidedly not fun. I, I'm just going to be upfront about that right now. It's a very sad movie. It's a tough sit. I kind of was just, I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, I don't really want to recommend another action movie this week. Like, I don't know, maybe it's Zack Snyder's Justice League is just sort of I feel drained after that much bombast and action on screen. So I just felt like recommending something a little bit quieter. And so for, for whatever reason, I had Derek C and Francis blue Valentine on the mind. So that's what I'm going to recommend for uh, listeners to check out. It's a 2010 film. It stars Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams uh, as a married couple that kind of, in a way it's, structured like uh like um marriage story which which came out last year uh or no it didn't come out last year did it? <clears throat> sorry let me jonathan let me back up a little bit it's structured a little bit like films such as marriage story where you kind of get a sense for uh a relationship's early promise as you watch it begin to to fall apart and, and break apart at the seams. And that's kind of what's going on with with this film as we see uh, the young couple played by Gosling and, and Williams. They just they they're so in love at the beginning of the film. And yet by the end of the film, they they basically they they drift apart and you kind of watch that happen. And it's it's deeply sad, I guess. And that's the, the reason I appreciate it is partly because of that. It's not the sort of film where it just wants to rub your face and two people being ugly to each other. It's, it's more interested in just kind of showing how even well-meaning people in love, sometimes it, it just, their, the relationship just does not hold up. And it's just, it's really well observed I've talked before about Derek C and France's writing and directing and how much I appreciate it. And I think those gifts are on great display here. It's probably, I don't know, I'd say it's his best film. And if you're looking for something that maybe isn't you know, the feel good story of the year, but is definitely a lot more thoughtful and heartfelt than a superhero punch him up, then blue Valentine's a good one to check out. <laughs> It has been a few years since I've seen Blue Valentine. Um, I, I think I saw it right after I got married, which was like, whoa, not the right, yeah, not the oh, right time man. to see it. It was, um, but I remember being very taken by it, and it was definitely one of those movies that it stuck with me. I appreciated it and looked at it and said, I don't know that I could sit through this again. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's definitely powerful, and Gosling and Williams are really fantastic. In that. Oh man, I I can't imagine watching like, as as a newlywed watching that movie. That would be that would make it an even harder sit than usual. So wow, kudos to you. That's that's amazing. <laughs> the first year of marriage, I saw that and. Um, uh, it was the Sarah Polly one that whose name I'm forgetting, and now that's oh, uh, the, away from her, not the, away the... from her. It was, um, gosh, it was my number one movie of that oh, year. Oh, too. take this and waltz, take this waltz, yes, yes, yes. yes. I, and uh, I saw those both within my first year of marriage, and uh, Holy cow. wow, yeah, yeah, they, they hit hard. Well, I mean, if if nothing else, that that probably kind of gives you a good like. Here's what. Here's some things not to exactly. Do. <laughs> it, it 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 helped us set the course. So, yeah. well, there you go. Uh, thanks so much, Chris, again for uh, coming on the show. Is there you know anything that you you'd like to plug for our listeners to check out? Any recent podcast episodes if they're kind of looking to get into 
your show, we're watching here, like what would you recommend for them to, to check out? Sure. Um, we're watching here, which you can find on Spotify and iTunes. We just finished a, uh, a discussion, like a long series of catch ups of movies from 2020. Um, but I was really proud of our episode that, uh, looked at Minari and Nomadland and first cow. Uh, that was a really fun discussion to have and to, those three films went really well together to talk about. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd recommend that as the one to start with, um, or, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly recent episode, but we had a good time doing that. Uh, I also put out a newsletter, Criticisms, uh, which is at Substack, and that comes out every Saturday. Yeah, I can, I can definitely uh, second your plug for Criticisms. I, I'm a recent subscriber myself, and it's definitely really worthwhile reading. So listeners, check that out if you have the chance. Uh, But for now, that's it for this episode. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show. Seeing and Believing is really happy to to have you. And uh, hopefully we can have you on the show again soon. That would be great. I had a great time. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much. All right. And and we're clear. I've got a little outro that I need to record, but uh, usually Wade does that. So I actually need to look up kind of like the the boilerplate uh, scripting that we use for that part. So I'll just record that later. All right. Well, that was fun. Thank you. I hope I didn't ramble. Listeners, that is the end of our episode. Don't forget, if you haven't already, to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast for ways you can support the show and maybe even get some swag for yourself in the process. If you like what you just heard, make sure to rate and review Seeing Believing in iTunes as it helps us boost us up in the ratings and is a great way to support the show as well. Thanks for listening to us this week. It's brought to you by ChristinPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and this has been Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.